0: Gotcha.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. G'day and welcome to Gradchat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much. But today is part two of research in relation to our north. So, and as you know, next week, actually tomorrow, we have the Northern Symposium, Research Symposium on here at Queen's. And so we've brought in a few more, more of our students who are working on that symposium and, of course, do work up in the north. So I'd like to introduce you today to Jacqueline Hung, who is doing a PhD in Geography under the supervision of Dr. Neil Scott and Dr. Paul Traits as well as Leela Colston-Napali, who is doing a Master of Science in Biology, under supervised by Dr Vicky Friesen. And also I'd like to welcome back Branavan Savaraja, who is doing a PhD in Biology under the supervision of Dr John Small. Welcome everybody.
0: Thanks, Thanks for having us. For having us. Right,
1: it's a nice big collective hello, because we've only got the one microphone for them all, so it's <laughs> all over the place. But anyway, thank you everyone for turning up today. Last week, of course, we had some of your colleagues on talking about their work that they do up in the North and also they're gonna be part of the Northern Research Symposium. So just quickly, first of all, Leela with you. Yes. Is this the first time you've been to a conference on campus? Or? Um, no, I actually attended it last year too, and I um,
2: presented a poster on my proposed research. So right. this year I'll be doing a talk on what I've actually been doing.
1: That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm And well, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. So Leela, your work, let me see, you're in biology, mm-hmm. and your research is called Using Genomic Tools to Answer Conservation Questions in an Arctic Seabird, the Northern fulmar. Yeah, that's the name of the bird. Yeah, the northern fulmar. Okay. Can you give us just a bit of a synopsis about what you're actually you're studying, and then we'll get into some of the other questions you've given me.
2: Yeah. So I'm part of a larger collaborative project with some researchers from different universities, and also I'm um, researchers at Environment Climate Change Canada. Oh. Okay. And we have um, an overarching aim of working to understand the vulnerability of seabirds to um, human activities and climatic changes. And so I'm working on one of the birds, the northern fulmar. And so what I'm doing is I'm using genomics to try to understand the genetic structure of the fulmar. So this means how different are the different breeding colonies from one another or how similar. And so this information is really important to conservation practitioners for them to figure out how to best allocate management resources. And then I'm also hoping to use genomics um, for a more application-based question. So the fulmars are killed in um, bycatch. So this means that when
1: fishery fish, fishing boats are out there, um, they get caught in the nets and stuff. Oh, so they're diving down to get the fish that are coming up and then getting caught in the nets.
2: Yeah, and so we don't really know which colonies the birds that are being killed are from because right. this is happening sort of in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping to use genetic markers to determine which colonies they're coming from. And this is really important because some, some of my collaborators did um, some population viability analyses and they saw that if those birds are coming from just a few of the colonies, then the colonies could be experiencing severe decline in the next 50 years. Right. Um, so I'm hoping to figure out which colonies they're coming from.
1: So you said that this up in the north how far up in the north is it near well obviously then it must be near land for them to come and land after they've gone trying to get their food through the fish. So, what what kind of area up north are you talking about?
2: So, falmars are migratory seabirds. Okay. So, during the breeding season, which is around April to October, they're breeding on very like rocky cliffs okay. um, on the coast. Um, but for the rest of the year, they're somewhere in the ocean. We don't really know what they're doing. Oh, they're, they're just flying to. around. Yeah. So, they're pelagic seabirds. So they're hanging out in the ocean. But they have a pretty broad range. So, um, there's a lot of them up in the Arctic. So um, I'm, I've got a couple of samples from some colonies up on Baffin Island, but they are actually, they've experienced major expansion in the last sort of 200 years. So there are fulmars that breed in the UK now, um, oh. some in Newfoundland, but they're not very big colonies in Newfoundland, but there definitely are like
1: quite a few in the UK so you need to get samples. So how are you getting, how do you get those samples? So many years of effort. <laughs> yeah. So
2: so thankfully, when I joined on this project, the National Wildlife Research Centre in Ottawa had a lot of fulmar tissues on hand. Um, and that's because a lot of people work on fulmars. Like one of my collaborators works on plastic pollution in fulmars. Okay. And so there's a lot of... Um, samples that they do have and I was able to get some of that but I think that it took many years and a lot of effort.
1: But then are the samples coming then dare I say from dead for Mars not live? So some will be from dead fulmars and then so what's interesting
2: about birds, so unlike us, um, so we don't have DNA in our blood because we don't have a nucleus in our blood cells. Right. But birds do, so you're able to get DNA oh, okay. from their blood. So you so can if also. So they've been hurt, you can so, get the blood. Well so um what you can do is you can take a blood sample from the birds without hopefully hurting them too
1: much right yeah okay see all these little questions that come along along the side Yeah. so why are arctic seabirds important for our environment arctic seabirds are a very important part
2: of arctic marine ecosystems and this is because there's so many of them so there's millions breeding worldwide and they have really big and broad ranges um, and they're usually at the top of food chains right and they're migratory so that means they exist in a lot of ecosystems globally and they have very long life history strategies so this means that they have long lifespans and they reproduce later in life and this makes them quite sensitive to changes in their environment and they can also act as indicators to the changes in the environment so seabirds have been used as indicators for chemical contaminants,
1: plastic pollution, habitat reduction and climate change. So how can genetics and in particular genomics help us address the conservation concerns? when we think about protecting biodiversity it's important
2: not just to think about the number of species or the number of individuals in a species but also the genetic diversity that that species has and this is because genetic diversity may allow a species to adapt to environmental changes right and so previously um, with genetic research we relied on a very limited number of markers however now we have advanced sequencing technology so we can subsample the genome so this means we're subsampling the entire genetic material of an organism right and we're able to get thousands of markers so you can work with a much larger data set and this allows us a more accurate representation of genetic diversity and it also gives us greater power to see more subtle signatures that might be going on right so by assessing the amount of genetic variation in a species and how it's partitioned so some species different populations will be very different from one another and some they won't be and understanding why that is will really help conservation practitioners figure out how to best protect Is it, it.
1: easy to figure out the differences between one colony and another is it come does it come down to the food they're able to get or Well, there's so many factors that can affect if populations are different
2: from one another, whether or not they're exchanging genes, gene flow, other factors that might be happening at those specific populations. So it makes it very interesting to study because there's
1: just so many factors that can affect that. Makes it harder, though, because there's a lot more variables for you, obviously. So what makes the northern fulmer an interesting species for you or in general for the biologists?
2: Uh, Like I said, they're a very long-lived seabird, so they have an average lifespan of 32 years. Oh, wow, that's big. Yeah, and there's even been birds found to be breeding over 50 years old, which
1: is pretty interesting. So they're surviving really, really well then. Well... I guess they're surviving well. (laughs) Maybe not, we're about to find out.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and so so they have these very long lifespans, which is pretty interesting. But that also sort of makes them more vulnerable because species with these long life history strategies, they're only producing maybe one egg per year and they're producing later in life. So if Uh, they are affected by things... So if they're affected in their first
1: eight years, then we've lost... Exactly, yeah.
2: And so, yeah, so fulmars are very long-lived, which is pretty interesting. I also find them interesting because, so fulmari is actually Latin for fowl, and they're kind oh. of, um, these birds are known to be pretty smelly. Um, they're known to like to <laughs> eat offal, so like the leftovers from, from fishing the fish. boats and stuff. And um, they actually throw up on their predators as a defense mechanism. Nice. With a very sticky, smelly oil. Nice. Um, so I find that kind of an interesting fun fact. <laughs> Um, But fulmars are also pretty interesting because they've been used a lot in plastics research. So they're surface feeders, meaning they don't always dive very deep. And maybe because of that, they're collecting a lot of plastic on the surface of the ocean. And um, they've even been found up in the high Arctic with plastic in their stomach. Is that right? Yeah. And so they may be acting as a vector moving plastics, but they're also a way that you can sort of indicate what sort of plastic pollution is going on. And this is something my collaborator, Jennifer Provincher, has been working on and some really interesting
1: research. So plastic. I hate it. Yeah, <laughs> Plastic in the seas, It's in our waterways, it's awful. Leela, thank you very much for telling us about that. We may have some more questions later, we'll see how much time we've got, but I appreciate you talking to us on, yeah, on your, so your little fulmar bird. <laughs>
3: thank you.
1: Sounds fascinating. So Jacqueline, we're gonna to go to you next. You're doing geography and your topic is seasonal controls on terrestrial carbon and nutrient cycling in the Canadian high Arctic. Yes. So what does that research encompass?
3: So I'm interested in looking at the relationships between carbon and nitrogen namely in high arctic ecosystems. Why carbon and nitrogen? They form the fundamental basis of a lot of naturally occurring things in in the world, including vegetation, plants, soils, things that are experiencing and undergoing change and change Uh in the high Arctic and um, studying those and looking at how those interactions are occurring across different years, between years can tell us a lot about how these ecosystems are responding, not only on a small scale, but upscaling it to a larger scale and even across the entire Canadian Arctic, how they're responding
1: to climate change. So this isn't necessarily permafrost?
3: Not necessarily. And a lot of people... Because
1: you've heard a lot about perma- permafrost. Permafrost, <laughs>
3: yeah. And a lot of people can or have it a little misconstrued in that permafrost is, technically speaking, the perennially frozen uh, ground that stays per- below zero degrees for two or more years. Right. And... Realistically, a lot of these permafrost scientists or a lot of the people that study the Arctic go up during the growing season, aka when it's summer, when the soils are thawed, when it's really realistically more accessible to be in the Arctic. Right. Um, So it's permafrost environments um, because it is permafrost laden underneath, but I'm more interested in... What happens on top. What happens on top, exactly. Things that are active in, in what we call the active layer of these permafrost regions.
1: So why are carbon and nitrogen important to terrestrial, oh, I love that word, terrestrial ecosystems? I feel like I'm going into space, but I'm not. i reminding myself, I am <laughs> You're on the, on, I'm on the, trash I am on the ground. I'm
3: on the ground. Well, I mentioned before they form a lot of what the car- carbon and nitrogen are really important elements in a lot of the plant cycles and the soil cycles that occur around the world or on the terrestri- terrestrial ecosystems. Carbon makes up a lot of what is sequestered through carbon dioxide by plants and cycled through the environments and. It gives rise to a lot of the other processes that happen on the ground, um, like heterotrophic respiration or autotrophic. Just, I mean, that is um, when that the that's a big word for me. When the soils release carbon dioxide or any microbial activity that occurs below okay. ground that we don't necessarily see, but it's really teeming with a lot of life that no, we don't necessarily notice. And a lot of these things at the smallest, when you when they are compounded and added up can Add a lot of change into the global
1: climate system. So, so why is this type of work important in the Arctic? Because we've heard, like I said, we've heard a lot about permafrost and what happens there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about for your area?
3: For my area, well, two weeks ago the climate change report was released by Environment Climate Change Canada with stats saying how Northern Canada is warming three times as fast, three times faster than the rest of the global average. Is that right? Yes. And that's not only a Northern Canada thing, it's a Pan-Arctic thing. Right. The poles, um, including Antarctica, are warming at a faster rate than the rest of the planet. So looking at how these cycles and these uh, feedbacks are interacting with each other, in in a changing climate is important because the Arctic takes up or covers a large landmass. It's everything basically above 60 degrees north or 66 if you're looking at the Arctic Circle. It's a big part of our planet and it acts as a good regulator in in the global climate system. So it helps regulate a lot of the temperatures that we receive down here and we're influenced by a lot of the a lot of what happens up in the Arctic in these temperate regions. Um, so that's why it's really important to kind of understand these interactions right now and as they're happening and how as they are changing in order to better predict how these things
1: might change in the future. Change well. in the future. Are you going up there yourself this summer yes. to see what's happening and then yeah. and what are you collect actually collecting? Um, so I've
3: I've been going. This will be my fourth summer up at Cape Bowney. I work oh, you out of,
1: clearly love going up there. I do
3: love going up there. I like to say <laughs> that I live there for two months of the year and attend on the, on the Arctic tundra. It's great. So when I go up, I'm interested in a few things. I look at the below ground by looking, um, collecting soil samples and employing different mechanisms to see what the nutrient pools look like mm-hmm. at certain times of the year um, for different key, key um, elements. That We're interested in um, that are important for the plants. I also look at um, the greenhouse gases that are being released or taken right. up by these environments. So namely carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxides. Some of these greenhouse gases that have really high green global warming potentials are, yeah. are really put out in the news as being really dangerous for our environment. So I take samples of those and measurements of those and look at those relationships between what's happening in the below ground nutrient pools and what's being released from their respiration and what their and the gases that are coming out from the ground naturally um, and look at those things and see how they compare to the temperature, the moisture and how they're um, changing with increasing temperature and changing moisture, also at the active layer, so how deep the permafrost is, so how, I guess, the depth of where all these processes can occur. Right. And then on a more broader scale, I also use remote sensing techniques, so using um, satellite imagery and hyperspectral imagery to look ah, at... that's what Greg
1: was doing last week. Exactly,
3: yes. yeah. So looking at how we can maybe look at some of these below ground and gaseous elements, but in a non-invasive way through right. remote sensing.
1: So I'm assuming then that you've been, or not just you, but other people have been collecting data for a long time now. Yeah. Ha- have you noticed even in the last, say, five years, maybe four years, because you've been up going out there for four summers. Yeah. Have you noticed even four years of some of the areas where you're taking these samples, and I'm assuming you're going back to similar places. Yes, I Have am. you noticed a difference already?
3: I have, unfortunately. And that's um, in four years. And that's just in four years in itself. Um, I've, I have spent my master's work or time in my master's looking at the Arctic wetlands in that watershed, and I've seen the changes through there, even just not not between a season but also across years. Right. And I know... Since our research site has been established which was in 2003 they've seen a two degree warming on average across that 16 15 year study period. Wow and this is um, when you take it all together, although there is interannual variability that's natural naturally occurring, we're still seeing on average warmer temperatures changing precipitation patterns and we're seeing it on the landscape too with. Disturbances and physical changes to the landscape.
1: Scary for all yes, of us. Yes. I mean we still haven't learned, have we? But uh <laughs> keep going at this research because yeah. we do we do need it. Thank you, Jacqueline. Thank I'm you. going to hand over I want you to hand over now, if you wouldn't mind, to Branovan. Okay. So uh Branovan, thanks very much for coming on again.
0: It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for having me again.
1: Good. So Branavan is focusing on lake ecosystems up in the Yellowknife area, particularly around some of the mining towns there, the, the old gold mining towns. And so can you just tell me a little bit about what you mean by that? I mean, what's, what's the purpose of looking at gold mining towns, um, and particularly in relation to the Northern Symposium, I guess?
0: Yeah, so... The Canadian Arctic is rich in natural resources, as we have seen both in the media, but also just from the numerous studies that are coming out in terms of how much natural resources are available there. And these were discovered very early, like in the turn of the 20th century itself. Geological Survey of Canada scientists went up there and looked at the rocks and other landforms, and they were like, there is resources to be extracted here. But the resource extraction operations didn't begin until later on in the 20th century, approximately 1930s or so, and then it was interrupted by the World War uh, II. And production increased after World War II because more labor was available and uh, yeah, so today we are here with uh, many mining operations taking place. Some of them are mining for diamond, whereas others are mining for other valuable uh, metals. and
1: Like gold and that, isn't it?
0: The gold mining was primarily done in the Yellowknife area between the 1940s to about to early 2000s. However, uh, it has um, reduced, at least in the Yellowknife area.
1: Now, I understand as one of the byproducts of some of the mining... Procedures.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: One of the byproducts is arsenic.
0: Yeah, so it depends on the geological formation. And in the Yellowknife area specifically, the gold ores in the Yellowknife area are contained within arsenopyrite. So when you roast those uh, rocks, you're going to release some arsenic uh, into the environment or at least. It's a byproduct right. that comes out of this procedure, uh, which is either stored underground or, as it happened in the during the early phases of mining, it was released into the environment.
1: And, and that's what you're looking at now, what's been released into the environment in and around the lakes or what's happening with the city nearby? So
0: my research interest is... So this mining happened in the Yellowknife area, but Yellowknife is also one of the northernmost cities in Canada. It sustains a population of more than 20,000 people. right? And the population growth happened uh, during the 20th century as well. And more recently, the uh, climate has been warming up there as well. So looking at the intersectionality of climate warming, land use changes or the development of the city, but right. also mining pollution. How all of these different stressors are impacting lake ecosystems.
1: Okay. And this is where you come with this fancy name. Is this the one? It's called Paleo ecotoxicology. Is that where you call yourself? A paleo ecotoxicologist? So, uh, that sounds pretty fancy.
0: By training, I'm a paleolumnologist. Oh, and there's a, another one. The field of paleolumnology is looking at past environmental history using the biological, chemical, and physical remains preserved in right. lake sediments. Right. Because often one of the biggest challenges uh, in northern environments, but also in southern latitudes as well, we don't have long-term monitoring data. And I'm talking about long-term in the sense of like 200... Right. Or even a thousand years, because the environments have been there, but knowing how they have changed through time can give us really good perspectives on how we have, as humans, altered Contributed
1: to the change.
0: Exactly. Altered the environment, at least, right? So the field of paleoecotoxicology builds on the principles of paleolumnology, but we are integrating other fields, so for example, ecotoxicology, uh, but also the paleolumnological techniques that have been used, so reconstructing past uh, metal con- uh, concentrations in sediments. And my focus is looking at how have the biota changed. So I have a colleague who is reconstructing metal concentrations at the University of Ottawa. Right. And I reconstruct the biological changes, and then we combine this information And we look at ecotoxicological uh, literature that's been coming out more recently and combining all of these different perspectives to look at how the biota are responding to these uh, multiple environmental stresses.
1: So what are some of the stresses then?
0: So as I mentioned previously, the development of the city. When we develop Mm -hmm. a city, it's going to have impacts on the ecosystems. So like they're going to need so for water example, and other
1: infrastructures.
0: Yeah, but also sewage is a mm-hmm. really good example. So one of the lakes that I have already worked on called Niven Lake uh, received raw sewage input between uh, for a substantial period of time in Yellowknife. So we are looking at how we can track it, but also what are the long-term effects right. of this sewage input into the lake
1: so what are some of the outcomes of your research to date because you're doing your phd Mm -hmm. so unlike some of your colleagues you've got a bit longer to collect the data and really get into the nitty-gritty of it
0: yeah so so far we have looked at uh, some siliceous algae called diatoms uh, in about 33 lakes in the Yellowknife area looking at what the distribution is like
1: Right, right. present
0: day but also we have been working on other lakes that have been impacted by these multiple stresses within the city of Yellowknife and we have uh, made a strong focus on lakes within the city of Yellowknife because these are used for recreational purposes okay. as well. So understanding them a little bit more can inform both the users but also the managers of these lakes.
1: Right so when so these diatomes you talked about i take it you're just taking samples from the sediments and 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 then what happens i mean what what are you testing within these diatomes
0: so typically what's involved in our field work is we go to the lake we collect water samples of course because we want to know the nutrient levels the contaminant levels etc in the water Right. but then we take lake sediment course So the sediment cores are retrieved usually from the deepest part part of the lake. And then we take the sediment cores and we section them. Uh, It's almost like a history book. So we look at the various parts of the layers. They're being settled
1: on top of each other. Exactly. See, that's fascinating
0: though. And uh, we look at, again, multiple different Mm -hmm. things. So contaminants, but also like I specialize in the biological specimens. And uh, through time, then we can c- create a history book almost.
1: But you want them to be able to use this history book, right? Yes. Of, for moving forward to yeah. make, make the ecosystem better up there. To get away from,
0: or at least informing future mining right. operations and that if you remediation this, this plans, do This is what's happening. This yeah. is what's going. So, mm-hmm. and also like a huge part of it too is like not just mining, right? Like these imp- mm-hmm. these ecosystems no, I mean, are influenced themselves. by multiple different things. Mm-hmm. Urbanization, climate warming is a huge thing, and uh, it's a threat multiplier, as some would call it. So I think it's important that we consider these multiple stressor worlds rather than looking at just mining. Yes.
1: If someone said to you right now, Branavan, I know you're going to Yellowknife. Why Yellowknife, and what are you trying to find for the people of trying to find out for the people of Yellowknife or that particular area? What would you say to them?
0: So I want to provide the long-term perspective because long-term perspectives are necessary for effective environmental management. Right. Because we need to know what were the conditions like before major anthropogenic influences. So, for example, mining, urbanization, and then more recently, climate. Right. And then during the mining operations, what were these ecosystems like? And then since they have ceased the mining operations, have these environments recovered?
1: Right, right.
0: So... Those are the three main things that I'm interested in. But then I'm hoping that this information can inform policymakers. Right. So that's our government partners, our industrial partners, and folks in Yellowknife. But also, I hope that this will inform the general academic community who are conducting research in northern latitudes and looking at the effects of contaminants on Biological organisms and specifically aquatic organisms, because right. the work that I do are on freshwater lakes. Right. So I think it's contributing a little bit to a bigger puzzle, hopefully.
1: Brilliant. See, there's lots you're doing up there. It's fantastic. Yeah, like. Renovan, thank you very much for coming on today. And I know you've had a big part to play in the Northern Symposium.
0: Thank you very so, much. And uh, it's a symposium that I really enjoy organising. For, for the fourth time. For the fourth time.
1: You see, <laughs> clearly loves it. Clearly loves it, yeah. clearly loves it. So thank you very much.
0: Thanks for having me at the show again, Collide.
1: So thank you very much, everyone, for coming on today. Enjoy your time tomorrow at the Northern Research Symposium. It's going to be fabulous. I wish I was going to be here. Unfortunately, I'm going to be away. But uh, I've, I've gone on and looked at the website. It looks like some fascinating stuff that's going to happen. Enjoy it. Take as much as you can from it. Do a lot of networking, which is all very, very important, and have a really successful symposium.
0: And thanks for having us again this thanks week.
1: You. Thank, Thank you. Us. So that's it, everyone. A another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. And don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week. This is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Good.